Welcome once again to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astor, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. What's going on, Todd? Hey, Corey. All right. First, we have two polls asking Utahns what they think about repealing the tax on food and the legislature's bargain for the constitutional amendment. Remember, we talked about this during the session. Uh, so this is from OH Predictive Insight. The poll asks, uh, with no additional context given, they found that eight in 10 voters, Utah voters, support repealing the tax on food. And that includes 80% of Republicans, 78% of Democrats, 76% of independents. So basically, it didn't matter what party you were, you wow. support it. But once the amendment was explained and the bargain, support drops to 57% overall including 61% for Republicans, 63% for Democrats actually support it more, <laughs> more than Republicans, which is interesting. But the fa- interesting factoid is also that independents drop to 51. They go from 76 to 51. So independents don't like this bargain. And uh, overall, it's a 57%. So before I kick it to you, Todd, because I would love to hear your views on this. The Deseret News also put out a poll like right after that one. And this one said found that 76% of Utahns agree with eliminating the tax on food. So pretty close. Yeah. Remember OH predicted that 80, so 80 or 76. So it's it's pretty much within the margin of error there. But as soon as you ask about the amendment, then only 47% support. Uh-oh. So uh-huh. The other one, the other poll said uh, 57. This one says 47. In any case, I don't know which one is right. I would say it's probably good evidence that uh, that people support the repeal on tax on food more than they support the amendment. Yes. But do you think this bodes ill for the amendment, Todd? No, I think it, it bodes well because we only need 50% plus one vote for the amendment <laughs> to pass. And if you average those two polls, you come up with about what, 54%, 53%. So, um, you know, I, I don't know how much of a campaign there will be. We're still waiting to see what the teachers union is going to do, if they're going to oppose it or not. Um, but I think we've got the other education stakeholders on board. I think it's a good change. We've talked about it before because um, it's not, I mean, if, if the legislature has proved anything over the past 10 years, we've shown uh, a substantial commitment to increasing, dramatically increasing education funding with like an 18% increase this year. I mean, if you count all the one-time money, um, but historic increases over the past uh, 10 years, really the past 12 years. Um, but this constitutional earmark um, that we're the only state that's burdened with that, it, it, it's really gonna create a problem if we go into recession. And it's not because we don't wanna fund education, it's just because it's just an odd situation where you have two sources of income but you can only spend one of them on one, you know, two things and that you have to spend everything else on the other one. And it just creates all kinds of structural imbalances. So I hope it does pass. It's not the end of the world if it doesn't, but um, um, th- this is kind of a little bit like the voucher bill where you, you give, it gave teachers a raise, but then created the voucher program. So it kind of had a poison pill in there. And this is the same thing. It gives people what they want to eliminate the sales tax on food, but then it also takes away the earmark. But let me just tell you, the legislature would be insane to repeal the sales tax on food without removing the earmark because it would just be shooting ourselves in the foot, you know, if, if we do have a recession. 
Yeah, you've made that case before, and I think it's pretty compelling. But it does take a while to explain. Like what's It does. It takes here. too long to explain. But let me just say this. If we have a recession, you might not buy a new car. You might not buy a new boat. You might not even buy you know new furniture. But you're going to go to Smith's every week and fill up your grocery cart, right? And so that's why during a recession, that sales tax on food kind of keeps the state running. So if mm-hmm. we take that away... Um, during a recession without, without removing that earmark, we're just, um, it's like drifting at sea with no engine and no rudder. So (laughs) do you think there's going to be any, so if the opponents I I fully expect will put their commercials out there, do you expect any education happening on the the pro side here? Well, if the teachers union vote to be neutral, then there will be no one. I don't think there will be anyone ads and that that's the key. Um, and we might be able to get some people to put out some ads in favor of it, but I, I don't know. I mean, we've tried really hard to make everyone happy in the education community, so at least they'll be a neutral and not not oppose it. This week, the Biden administration allowed the COVID health emergency declaration to expire. And we all know that that was based on the science, right? The science told us that 9-11 was the end of of COVID. Anyway, it's crazy to think that it's been three years since this dang thing started. There's a lot for us to reflect on here, but let's save the reflections for another day because there's a more pressing consequence for ending the health emergency. And that is that Title 41 of the public health emergency relating to immigration, it also expired. Yeah. So title, I said, I said 41, I meant 42. Title 42, 42 is the yeah. name of the emergency health authority that allowed U.S. officials to turn away migrants who came to the U.S.-Mexico border on the grounds of preventing the spread of COVID-19. And so under Title 42, migrants were returned uh, over the border and denied even the right to seek asylum. So that was a, obviously a, a Trump declaration but President Biden kept fi- uh, Title 42 in place after he took office. He did try to end it briefly in 2022, but the courts uh, uh, rebuffed him, kept the rules in place. But now that the public health emergency has ended, that tool that's been so valuable to restrict border crossings has ended. And so the result has been an unprecedented surge at the border. Some of you have probably seen this on cable news or on your social media some 11,000 to 12, uh, 13,000 border crossings are happening every day now. That's basically double the number that was already elevated and unprecedented under the Biden administration policies. So we have smugglers and coyotes telling migrants that the border is open and there's just a bull rush. So Representative Chris Stewart, he said he believes Democrats are responsible for intentionally creating chaos at the border. He said, House Democrats aren't clueless on the border. It's worse than that. This chaos seems to be their intention. Senator Mike Lee posted on Twitter, he said, the expiration of Title 42 doesn't have to prove disastrous, but it will unless Secretary Mayorkas starts detaining asylum seekers crossing our southern border until their claims are adjudicated as the law already requires and immediately repatriates those who can't be detained based on a lack of detention facility bed capacity. He says DHS is carrying out street releases of undocumented migrants as we speak. And the White House and DHS have known for a long time that this day was fast approaching and they refused to fix the problem. Even Senator Romney 
has become more vocal on this issue. He signed. He recently signed a letter declaring that the crisis at the border has also contributed to ongoing harms against migrant children and has left them vulnerable to exploitation, forced labor, and sex trafficking. The letter Romney signed also calls for finishing the border wall. And at a recent hearing for the Homeland Security Committee, Senator Romney asked Secretary Mayorkas to grade the administration's efforts to secure the border. Mayorkas refused to answer, and Romney replied, it's an F. It's clearly an F. Todd, what do you think? Yeah, I um, I think it's interesting, you know, because a lot of us, including the Biden administration, thought we were going to see this big surge starting on Friday. And we, we haven't seen it yet. I think it might be the lull before the storm because I think a lot of people came early and they just because they heard it was expiring and they just went ahead and crossed. And I think now that it has expired, I think we're, we're going to have a lot more people coming in the next weeks and months. Um, but Mayorkas was out there on all the Sunday morning TV shows, thump, uh, you know, thumping his chest like somehow, you know, two, two or three days into this, it's a big victory. Um, I do think it's interesting that. Um, not only did Biden hang on to a Trump era Title 42 policy for an extra two years, um, he's also reinstated some of the Trump policies that he, border policies that he criticized as a candidate. So, um, and then Kamala Harris was designated to solve the border crisis like two and a half years ago, and she got shamed into visiting the border for about five minutes last year, but I don't, I don't know that she's done anything. I mean, do you know of anything that she's done? No, no. I mean, that, that, just visiting the border was a huge accomplishment for her. So. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, to their tremendous credit, the House Republicans this past week, they passed a border enforcement bill that would increase the number of Border Patrol agents. It would crack down on what is a completely broken asylum system that pretty much just allows immigrants to claim asylum. And everyone knows it's a ruse. Yeah. They're not leaving for political persecution. They're leaving because of jobs. And, you know, I don't blame them, but that's not that doesn't qualify for asylum. And the Biden administration basically just says, OK, and allows them into the country to roam free while they supposedly wait for a hearing date that we all know will probably never come. But if it does, it'll take years. Yeah. And so it's completely tantamount to an open border. Yeah. I, I want to give credit to House Republicans for passing something. We, we know that the House majority McCarthy's majority is extremely slim and to get uh, a debt ceiling bill across which we'll talk about next time and getting this uh, immigration enforcement bill across the finish line those are two massive accomplishments and it just goes to show that they do have their act together so yeah. Democrats know that uh, that the border is open and that's actually their plan because the progressive activists that run the Democratic Party they don't believe borders should exist. I'm not saying all Democrats. I'm just saying those that actually run the party, who have influence, who run the, t uh, the cable news channels, that basically run our institutions in America. Remember, they like to chant that no person is illegal. And they think restricting immigration flow is immoral. I say thank goodness that the House Republicans disagree. And uh, one last note. About uh, three weeks ago, President Biden announced that he was going to open up Medicaid and Obamacare plans to DACA recipients. And regardless of what we feel about DACA recipients, remember, we were promised that these that uh, that putting them on on welfare is not wasn't going to happen. And that's pretty much what's happening for some, not all, of course, maybe not even most, but definitely for some. And to just do this in the middle of the night to add Medicaid and Obamacare, 
Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. I saw a headline today that someplace they were kicking vets, uh, veterans out of their beds to give them to, to, to some of these border. Oh, jeez. Um, which, you know, again, I'm not, a, I, I'm not opposed to trying to take care of these people crossing the border, but let's, let's not do it at the expense of people that fought for our country. <laughs> you know, um, I don't know. There's just so much that's going wrong right now. Um, uh, you know, I, I wish, I, I just wish we could fix the, immigration problem but it's so broke that I don't, I don't even know where to start but in any event yeah so i um i think we'll still have a historic number of border crossings attempted border crossings this year um but i mean you know and it's easy to criticize biden for reinstating some of trump's border policies but at least they were working and right. you know i think it just shows when you're running for office you can say anything you want to but when you actually get an office and have to govern you're like oh crap um uh, that policy I criticized was actually doing some good. So, so I guess we should be tipping our hats to him for recognizing that he was wrong. We got a couple of polls that reveal the governor's job approval rating. OH Predictive Insight ran a poll, showed Governor Cox is favored by 57% of Utah voters. And that's actually driven by a 68% approval rating by Republicans. And the latest uh, Deseret News Hinckley Institute of Politics poll asked the same question. They found that 64% of Utah voters approved Governor Cox's performance. And that R's and D's, uh, you know, that in this case, R's and D's and independents were also candid. But here's the interesting factoid, Doug. This, now, again, I'm not saying this is accurate, but I'm saying this is what they found. The poll says, Cox's support among very conservative voters, this is self-identified very conservative voters, since December, their appro- approval rating has increased from 58% to 63%. This is a- among very conservative voters. Among somewhat conservative voters, it's increased from 69 to 75. And of course, among, uh, and, uh, uh, from, I'm sorry, among moderates, it's increased a whopping from 60% to 78%. It's increased by 18%. That's huge. And among Democrats, it's gone down by 20 points among the liberal and about almost 30 points among the very liberal. So uh, Governor Cox has really increased his standing among conservatives and moderates, and he's dropped like a rock among the liberals. That seems like a good sign to me. But how do you take this poll? Well, I think, unfortunately, it's another indication that the caucus uh, convention system is producing delegates who are not representative of the actual people that they're supposed to be representing. Not, not all delegates, but clearly, clearly the delegates are more conservative than the Republican base voters. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how, how to explain that because I think that if, um, if somebody runs against Cox next year, who is perceived by the delegates to be more conservative than Cox, they will flock to, to that candidate, who, whoever it is, uh, even though the, the Republican base seems to, you know, have a very favorable impression of him. And, you know, I like Governor Cox, but um, so it'll be interesting to see. He's clearly running for reelection. I think he's on a path to be reelected. And I don't know who's going to run against him because I think everybody's waiting to see what Romney's going to do, except for Brad Wilson. He just, he just jumped right in. So we'll see how that yeah. works for him. Well, you got two polls here that show very strong support among Republicans. 
I mean, yeah. 64% in the OH predictive <laughs> and, um, you know, something close to uh, 65, 65 to 70% among folks who call themselves conservative. We, we talked uh, I mean, recently been, about Jason Preston and coming up to him, but someone like Jason Preston, someone from that crowd will run against Cox. I mean, I'm, I'm going to make that prediction. He's not going to go unopposed in the Republican Party, but he'll probably get some extremely far right candidate that will run against him. You're probably right. With numbers like this, it's it's really going to uh, discourage anyone who who would I, what I would consider would be. A, a stronger candidate. Well, it's going to discourage someone who's legitimate, you know, reasonable candidate. It won't discourage an extremist from running. All right, last topic. This is a fun one and a little bit uh, offbeat. Deseret News asked 800 Utahns how they feel about tipping over the past year. And we mean <laughs> tipping at a restaurant. So, you know, the no. tipping situation has really changed since, uh, since COVID taught. Prior to COVID, I think the expectation probably for the last hundred years was that you tip a server when you're at a sit-down restaurant, they take yeah. your order, bring your food and so forth. I don't think very many people would have considered it probably worthwhile to tip someone who just takes your order at the register. I mean, of course, yeah. uh, 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 folks at the register, particularly if it's a, not a, not a uh, franchise restaurant, you know, maybe they would have like a tip jar. Okay. But now, everywhere you go, regardless of where it is, they flip the screen they want you at the to register tip. over to you, and you have to yeah. basically decide in front of them yeah. whether you want a tip. Awkward. And I think at least a few people, including myself, find that super annoying. Yeah. Now, during I, COVID, I'll say for myself, I, I, did, I would tip during COVID because I, you know, I kind of fell for them. It's like, this is a, we're, you know, we're all in this together kind of yeah. thing, you know. Folks are, you know, struggling and so forth. And I was lucky that I, I could work remotely and not everybody could. So, you know, whatever. I'm not sure it makes any sense anymore. And uh, last week, I have, a, I, have a, I have a story for you. Last week, this came up because I, I, I reached out to a guy that I wanted to get to know better. I uh, offered to buy him lunch. And so we go to Apollo Burger and we get there and they put the screen over to me. And of course, I'm buying his too. And then yeah. I have to decide in front of the whole world, you know, yeah. in front of the, in front of the register, in front of this guy that I'm trying to make a good impression on and in yeah. front of God, like, am I going to tip this guy or not? And I, I'm like, you know, no. And so I put no, and we start, we walk over the drink machine and he, and he turns to me and I was like, Oh, here it comes. Cause I didn't know, is he going to is he going to criticize yeah. me or not? And he goes, he goes, I think it's ridiculous that they asked you to tip. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you, you gambled like, well, and you won. <laughs> you gabbled and you won. I was like, oh, I was worried you were going to criticize me. And he's like, no, no, I would have criticized you if you actually would have tipped. So anyway, here's what the poll says. And then I want to hear what you think, Todd. So in the poll, uh, first of all, nearly one third of the people said they feel pressure to tip. But more interesting is what types of situations they felt merited a tip. So the ones that did that had a high percentage, you know, sit down restaurants. Yes. Food delivery drivers. Yes. Salons are going to the get your hair cut. Barbers, yes, okay, I, I tip those. Uh, fewer said yes to taxis and Uber drivers, which you know I, I, I have to travel a lot, and so I always tip there. But two thirds of people agreed that that restaurants like fast casual restaurants or takeout, just picking up takeout, does not merit a tip. So two thirds agree with that. 
Todd, how do you tip? Um, you know, uh, I, I, I think I'm a generous tipper because I, I was a waiter in college. Um, if my wife's with me, she double checks to make sure I'm a generous tipper, but this whole new thing about tipping at the counter, you know, tipping the cashier, it's kind of a, a bold new territory. And I'm, I'm with you hundred percent during COVID. I was probably more inclined to say, Hey, we're all in this together. And, um, but now it's like, Hey, and I, I'll tell you where my dilemma has always been. And this is, this goes back decades is that like the Chuckarama type places? Because I go up and get my own food. I get my plate. I get my napkin. <laughs> I get my fork and my knife. And then this server girl comes out and, you know, usually a girl, sometimes this guy and says, hey, can I get you a drink? And I'm like, I already have my drink. But, you know, I know they want to get me a drink because they want the tip and they are going to bust the table. So I've generally tipped at those places, but it's it's not, I'm not doing 10 or 15 or 20 percent. It's usually a buck or two, you know, and so I, I don't know. I think I'm in the same camp as you are. But, you know, if the if the cashier is really nice, if they make me laugh, if, you know, if they laugh at my joke, then I'd probably be more inclined to tip them <laughs> than if they're All just... All servers out there, that's the key. You get Todd Weiler, you laugh at his joke. You I'm serious, yeah. Oh, can I mention one thing? Oh yeah, go. Uh, the Durham report came out today, and again, no evidence at all um, of any of the uh, steel dossier points being, um, you know, being verified. And the only evidence we have is that the FBI and other Department of Justice officials were acting on an anti-Trump bias. So, so that's uh, that's kind of uh, confirming what we we kind of already knew, and then. I don't know if you saw this over the weekend, but Joe Biden gave a speech at a, a you know, a historically black college, which is great, uh, but then tells those graduates that the biggest threat facing our country right now is white supremacy, white supremacist, which I think is terribly disappointing from any president, but especially one who ran on trying to unify the nation. So I just, I don't know if you have any comment on that, but I'm just wondering, you know, what's going on anyway. My only comment is I'm shaking my head right now. I know. I mean... <laughs> Look at there are some white supremacists in our country. I'm not denying that. I don't think they're the biggest threat to our country right now. So I'll just leave it at that. Hey, thanks, Corey. All right, thanks. All right. Talk bye -bye. to you next week.